Uh, I'm excited to be here. Pastor Joe did say there would be grading sheets, and I looked around and I didn't see any red pens, so it's a little confusing, but it's all right. Uh, no, it's good to be here back in York, back, in, back at Calvary, where my home is. Um, as expected, when I got home, uh, my family, well, most of my family gave me a really warm welcome. Jordan uh, came down the stairs and looked at me and said, well, you're still pale. Uh, and then I think he hugged me, so <laughs> it's good to know things don't, uh, don't change very much. Um, yeah, anyway, so enough stories about home. You guys are interested in seminary, uh, I hope. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Um, so I'll take a couple minutes to update you about um, seminary, and then I'm excited to open the word with you, and so we'll see what happens there. Uh, so in case you didn't know, I mean, you do now, Pastor Joe just said, uh, that I was attending, I am attending Expositor Seminary in Jupiter, Florida. And uh, uh, I often get asked what I think of Florida, being, you know, a new person there, and I usually respond with, well, it's hot and there's lizards. Um, I've grown fond of the lizards because they keep the bug population down, and they're kind of cool. Um, still working on the hot part, but uh, it hasn't been that bad recently. Um, yeah, so before I even left to head down there, um, God had opened many doors and made it clear to me that he was directing my path, as he promises to do. One of these ways was by giving me an opportunity to uh, live with a really sweet couple uh, that's been going to the church for 25, 30 years, something like that. And um, it's been just such, such a blessing to live with them, get to know them. Um, and only living three to six minutes from the church and also school is, have been, has been really great because I don't like to leave with enough time. Um, but one of the really cool things that I got to experience is what David was talking about in Psalm 139, 7 through 12, where he writes about the omnipresence of God. And he says, uh, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Uh, God is very present in Florida, just like he's present here. And um, the, he's, like I said, he provided many ways before I left, but one thing he didn't provide was a job. He didn't provide a way to support myself. It was really, it was a kind providence of God. Um, I got down there, I was able to just trust him, and, and he um, provided. It was incredible. The guy I'm staying with, Jim, and his wife, Laura Devine, um, Jim, as it turns out, is kind of the local like, go-to guy if you're looking for a job. He is, I don't know if you know what LinkedIn is. I, I did a couple years ago. Um, he's, he has uh, 14,000 connections, so very helpful uh, man for that. Uh, he helped me get my resume set up and my LinkedIn um, all updated and everything. And within two days, I think, I had an offer for a job that I ended up accepting, uh, just being super flexible with the, the schedule of my schooling and uh, I'm able to work there, and I actually enjoy what I'm doing, and the, uh, the pay isn't awful. So it's just really good. God has been really, really helpful um, in that. Um, yeah, so the job that I'm working at is a, a small manufacturing company. We make uh, just lighting equipment, and I'm the only engineer on staff, so I kind of do whatever I want, and it's kind of great. Um, but I, I really enjoy it. I'm able to fix things and, and engineer stuff, so it's fun. Um, and yeah, God is really was at work in that, and still is at work in that. Um, he en enabled me to find a job that the work is super flexible, so I can work on Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, and go to school on Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, and then uh, I can still support myself on those limited hours, and then when I don't have school in the winter of the summer, I'll be able to bump those to full-time. So just, God's incredible. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Um, so as I just mentioned, we have classes on Wednesday and Thursday. 
uh, which, during which time I get to be poured into and trained via classes, chapels, and personal discipleship. And uh, then I'm able to work on homework throughout the rest of the week, which includes a lot of reading and writing, uh, a lot of reading, uh, which is really great. I, I enjoy that. Uh, one of the distinctives of this seminary is that it is done in the context of a local church. Um, and I've really, really enjoyed that because that means each professor that I have is um, a pastor, either senior or associate, of a local church. And we're all connected via Zoom. And um, at first, it was a little strange trying to get used to the Zoom context, even though I did go to uh, Zoom University for engineering. Um, but it's been, you know, we, we're, we're getting used to it, and um, it's become just a giant classroom. Uh, it's been really great with that. Uh, but being part of the local church also gives me the ability to be discipled by um, some really awesome people. Um, I think my dad uh, mentioned last week, if you guys were here, one of the disciples' name is Lance Quinn, who for some reason agreed to disciple me. I don't know. Um, he's, he's great, though. Another guy I get to meet with is James Jung, and I'm just very blessed to be able to spend time with them and, and pick their brain. Um, James actually knows the Cabetes, so that was a cool connection. Um, so when I'm not studying or working, I've enjoyed getting to know a lot of the, um, the church community, which has very kindly welcomed me into their church. We have a college and career ministry we call CNC um, each week on Thursday night, and um, I also get time with a lot of the guys on the different mornings, and people there wake up way too early, so we go at six, and I don't like that. Um, I'm getting used to that, though. Uh, but yeah, having grown up here at a church that does the one another's of the New Testament so well, uh, it's been really awesome going to a new church that, just kind of as a newcomer, that also does the, the one another's of the New Testament. It's been great to experience that. Um, I've been asked many, many times uh, what I think the biggest thing is that I've learned at seminary, and that's a really hard question. Um, there's been so many very great things, but I think the most impactful so far is just that God can be trusted with absolutely everything, and that I need to trust him. There was a lot of unknowns before I got there, job, home life, church community, seminary classes and professors, um, etc. But God provided beyond what I could ask for in every single area, um, even down to the sermons. Uh, I grew up with, um, with Pastor Joe's sermons, and I've grown to love it. I think I've always loved it, just how he works methodically through the scriptures and verse by verse, word by word, and just takes his time and really uh, mines the, the depth of the wonderful truths there. Um, when, I was, when I got to Grace Emmanuel, I was a little nervous. I, I wouldn't have that same preaching. I knew it would be good, but I didn't know if it would be that kind of same in depth. Um, those were quickly dispelled, because when I got there, we started Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and we started reading. Simon Peter, a bondservant, and that's as far as we got for that entire 50-minute sermon. <laughs> so it's been great. <laughs> um, I think we're, we're three verses into chapter 2 the past three, four months, so... Um, <laughs> So, yeah, even there, God provides. And uh, I joked, it was only a half joke, but I joked with Pastor Joe about titling my message today, um, something that screams, I just started seminary and I want everyone to know. So I came up with, God is great, an experiential and expositional approach. (laughs) Experiential because I have have experienced his greatness in Florida, and expositional because our passage tonight talks about God's greatness. Thankfully, I didn't say that. I wasn't going to tell you that, so I'm glad I didn't. Um, Instead, I'm calling the message uh, just the root and fruit of assurance, which apparently is still really long. Um, Pastor Joe was kind to tell me. So we'll see together that uh, the sole grounds and goal of our assurance is being found in Christ. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, can you open up with me to Philippians 3, 7 through 11? 
And uh, as you're turning there, I want to give a little context for this letter. Paul addresses uh, the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. As you see, he said, beloved, twice. Uh, he says they are his joy and crown, and that he longs to see them. This is a church that Paul loves. The church in Philippi had, a, had supported Paul on multiple occasions, enabled him to show the sacrificial love of Christ to others, uh, to the other churches, such as those in uh, Thessalonica and Corinth. So this was a church that Paul loved, but this was a church that uh, loved Paul as well. So it's interesting, though, that uh, this church played such a big part in Paul's ministry. Because um, when Paul entered the, the city, if you remember, uh, there were no synagogues, and so he usually goes to the synagogue and preaches there, but there were none, which means there were less than 10 Jewish men. Um, they, they couldn't start one. So he went down to the river where um, some worshipers were gathering, and there was just a few people, mainly women, and so he started um, preaching to them. And so with such humble beginnings, this church became one of the few to support Paul's ministry. And they became the first converts in Europe, which I thought was interesting to learn. Uh, unlike most of his letters, Paul isn't writing uh, to address some disagreement or false teaching that has arisen in the church. Instead, he's writing to encourage them to uh, keep the faith, reminding them that in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul wanted to write to them because, um, and to use his words from chapter 2, verse 15, he says, they were children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And I think that's really helpful for us to know, because as Christians living in our country that is drawing and, and continuing down this more, uh, more perverted path, uh, we still, too, are, are children of God, and we're still called to be lights in this world. So we can draw a lot of comfort from this letter. Uh, Paul had written to a few churches, most notably the Galatians, to teach against a group known as the Judaizers. And he addresses them a little bit in this letter. Um, not explicitly, but kind of more as a, hey, this might be coming your way. Uh, this, that's kind of our passage in chapter 3. Um, so the Judaizers taught that the laws of the Old Testament were still required for salvation. And Paul wanted to um, disband that idea and, and solidify these, the Philippians' belief that this is not how we get salvation. Often, Paul would summarize the things that these Judaizers would say uh, with the word circumcision, because that was a big part of uh, their message. This is what's happening in chapter 3, as you see in verse um, 3. He says, uh, verse 2, beware of the false circumcision. So that's what he's doing. He's referring to the Judaizers there. Um, and so... Let me find where I'm at there. Uh, Paul transitions um, from what he'd been saying to the church in chapters 1 through 2 with the word finally in chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, and he begins to warn against the belief that puts confidence for salvation in anything that it has to do with our flesh. Any works of the flesh, he says, that's not how we get salvation. So as I was studying this, I was thinking of some of the um, teachings that I've heard over the years uh, concerning the gospel. And unfortunately, in evangelicalism today, many uh, false teachings of the, how the gospel have popped up. Uh, because of this, we may find ourselves confronted with a person that says they are a Christian, but we don't really see any fruit or any uh, evidences of that. I call these, I refer to these people as a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only. Um, and one of my best friends, when, when talking to such a person, one of his favorite ways is uh, to kind of steer the conversation more to deep, deeper towards the true gospel. So by asking this question, he says, on a scale of one to 10, how confident are you that you'd be in heaven with God if you died tonight? 
Just simple, non-intrusive question. Everyone's ready, but it really reveals a lot. And then he, it's the easy follow-up. He says, why? For some people, that is an easy um, follow-up. And almost all people can say why pretty easily. But for a lot of people, it's hard to answer. Um, so before we start thinking of people in our lives, we're going to start nudging a friend. Um, let's ask ourselves that question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident am I that I would be in heaven with God if I died tonight? And why? How would you answer that question? Where do you base your confidence or your assurance of, of your salvation? Is it that you've said certain phrases or a prayer or that you've done good things or that you go to a good church or you're raised in a Christian family? Um, let's, yes, let's uh, read Philippians 3, 7 through 11 uh, to see where the root of our assurance must be and what fruit um, it will produce. So I'll read that. Um, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Let's pray. Dear God, uh, thank you for this time that you're giving us to uh, study your word. I pray that I would be clear and uh, that you would get the glory here. Uh, we read this morning in Psalm 127 that uh, no matter how much we work, uh, if you are not the one working, then there's, uh, we're doing it all in vain. So I pray that you would work and that your spirit would move here uh, and that you just bless our time together. And in your name, amen. All right, so as I previously mentioned, uh, Paul is beginning to provide the church some, um, in, in Grace Emmanuel, they refer to it as cement and rebar uh, to their faith. Um, so he's providing a firm foundation, something that can't be moved when they are tempted to believe that they can or should uh, add anything to their salvation. He says in verse 2 and 3 of this chapter, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul then uses his own, you could call a spiritual resume, uh, to show that even if they had every earthly reason to uh, put confidence in their flesh, they would still have no heavenly and therefore true reason to put, conf to, uh, put confidence in their flesh. Uh, he lists his accomplishments, and though impressive, he says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For me, this is so powerful. As one commentator put it, It is a powerful thing when one has, every, has what everyone is chasing, but renounces it for what can be found in Christ alone. Paul lists his spiritual pedigree, for, uh, which was everything the Judaizers wanted and, and drew their confidence from. And he says he counts it as nothing for the sake of Christ. So if not that, what is our grounds or the root of our assurance? Well, first, let's talk about what it's not. Uh, Paul mentions here where we cannot place our confidence. He uses the phrase, whatever things were gained to me. This includes everything he just mentioned in verses 5 and 6, which we didn't read, but I told you it's a spiritual resume. Um, it also includes everything else that you might consider as gain. So what does the world say is gain? What do, what do we want to naturally think is gain? Maybe it's social status or money or, or comfort or pleasure, um, fulfillment. How has the world influenced our perception of gain? Can we say with Paul that what we have considered, or that we have considered that all gain is loss for the sake of Christ? 
One way to tell is by thinking of how we spend our time and our resources and our, uh, what we think about. Continuing this verse then, uh, Paul says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. This word counted is also used earlier in this letter in chapter 2, where Paul says that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, this word count means to consider or regard something as, uh, as certain, uh, to be a certain way after carefully weighing all the facts. So if we review all the facts, if we uh, take everything that we, we think is gain and, and all the eternal truths that we know, we ought to say that um, everything that might be earthly gain to us is loss. Looking at this verse again, Paul says, were gain and have counted. Paul is conveying here that these things were gained to him. They used to be. They used to be gained. These are the things that Paul counted as gain before giving his life to Christ. This is an important part of what Paul is teaching. To Paul, to submit your life to Christ is synonymous with uh, considering everything that he used to see as gain to be lost. So I want to pause here real quick to mention uh, that this is where we must start with our gospel understanding. We must understand our own inability to remove any part of our guilt before God. Paul lists some impressive things that he has done and that he's accomplished um, in verses 5 and 6 and says that none of them are worth anything. He keeps religious ceremonial law. He was born into God's covenantal people. He showed more zeal and passion than anyone to fulfill the laws of God by becoming a Pharisee, by persecuting a movement that he saw as a perversion of Judaism. Uh, And he kept all the Pharisaical laws. Yet he knew that none of this could gain him anything. We must have this perspective. Nothing we can do will gain us anything eternally. Think with me what this means for us. We cannot put any hope or draw any assurance from our ability to follow God's laws. So being born into a Christian family or or certain things we haven't done or anything else, none of that uh, means anything for us, for our salvation. So not only does our assurance not rest on things that uh, we have done, but also it does not rest on things that we are doing. Paul says in verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost. In the previous verse, Paul says he counted. Now he says he counts. This is him saying at every moment, he is consciously making a a choice and a decision. He's evaluating all the facts and he's coming to the conclusion that he has to regard all things as lost because none of them are, um, he can put any confidence in them. Notice another thing about verse 8. He says all things. Lance Quinn, who's my disciple I mentioned, he likes to call this word all the 100% word. Um, And it helps me remember what it means. Uh, Paul is saying that he not only counts everything, every gain is nothing, but he counts um, everything else as well as nothing. Sacrifices, suffering, even death is seen seen as insignificant when viewed next to to knowing Christ. Before moving on to where we are to place our confidence, let's talk about this word loss because he uses it quite a few times. Uh, Paul counts everything to be lost, uh, gain or otherwise. In the New Testament, only Paul uses this word, uh, twice here and twice when speaking of the shipwreck on the way to Crete. And I think that's a really good example of what this word loss means. Uh, So remember that story or or that event that happened um, when the ship was traveling fine, when they were, you know, on their way to Crete or or passing by Crete? they were traveling fine. They had all these things that they considered gain. They had their, their supplies, their food, their provisions. Um, and the minute that they weren't doing as good, you could say, the weather came and the, they were being buffeted by the winds. 
they started to see their belongings, their gain, as a little different. Um, so listen to how the crew counted all their cargo once they were being violently storm-tossed. Uh, you can turn there or just wait for me to read it. It's in Acts 27, 18 through 20 is what I'll read. All right. Um, he says... Oh, nope, that's the wrong section. One second. There. Um, He says, the next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. So when certain death came, all their belongings on the ship that were seen as gain at one point, now were seen as the very things weighing them down, they had to be rid of them. I think if we properly understand our condition before God, we will not only see all things as unnecessary, uh, but begin to throw them overboard. Uh, we will um, uh, yeah, throw overboard the things that we once valued. And speaking of this word loss, uh, one commentator says, it is not just that where once Paul was ahead, now he is behind. It's not just that he has experienced a reversal of fortunes. It's that the positives themselves have become the negatives. The assets are now the liabilities. What once were life preservers are now a millstone around one's neck. And all of this for the sake of Christ. So that's what it's not. Um, So hopefully, yeah, um, hopefully you understand that's what it's not. What is it then? So if our assurance does not come from anything that we have done or are doing or could do, what should we stand on for our confidence that we will be in Christ? Paul says he can count all things as loss three times in our passage in uh, Philippians, which I am not in anymore. Um, but he is, um, he's careful to emphasize that all these things are lost, not necessarily because they're bad or evil. He says they are lost when compared to Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Um, for example, some things are bad, uh, such as the persecution of the church, but some things aren't necessarily bad, such as being a Benjamite. Paul is saying that he has, decisively in the past and continually in the present, compared the internal value of each thing and always comes up with the conclusion that knowing Christ is far better than the value of anything else. So it is the worth of knowing Christ that surpasses all things. But Paul doesn't just refer to Christ by that name. He says, Christ Jesus, my Lord, to emphasize his glory and surpassing worth. So he is Christ, the anointed one, the promised one from of old. He is the Messiah who was promised from the very beginning in Genesis to crush the serpent's head. Through him and to him and are all things, and all things are made through him, and all wrongs will be righted. He is the one who left the gaze of angels and humbled himself in obedience to the Father to sacrifice his life for those who would place their faith in him. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been given, um, all things have been created through him and for him. He's uh, Christ and he is Jesus. He is the God-man in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the one who loved and served and taught and fed the multitudes of people while on earth. He was silent before his accusers and died for the sins that were not his own. Jesus loved his people to the end and rose victoriously as a conqueror of sin and death and now reigns at the Father's right hand, making intercession for us. But it's not just Christ and, and Jesus. He is Lord. This is the word that uh, when the 
um, apostles were translating the Old Testament word Yahweh, this is the word that they used. He is the infinite, holy, majestic, loving God who is sovereign over all. He is the unchangeable, merciful, um, powerful God who orchestrates all events so that we can say all things work for the good of those that love him. Paul gives uh, the best description of this God a little bit earlier in this letter in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, where he says, talking about Christ, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and, at the, and at, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This God, Paul says, is my Lord, and he is our Lord too, if we repent of our sins and believe in him. So I hope you can see why knowing this Lord, this Jesus, is of such incalculable worth that all other things ought to be tossed overboard. Not only can we know this Jesus, but we can know him as our Lord, as mine, as yours, as personal Lord. That's incredible. In uh, Romans 5, 1 through 2, Paul uh, speaks much of the same idea. Um, He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are given grace so that we can stand. So what does it mean to know Christ? Well, this is not a mere intellectual knowledge of him. We can't just um, just say, I know the the knowledge of the existence or the attributes of Christ. However, that is a really good book uh, by Stephen Charnock. I'll just plug that right here. Uh, it's called The Existence and Attributes of God. Anyway, um, but rather this is, uh, this knowing him is, is knowing him relationally. And it's given by God so that we may glorify him. We know this is true because Paul has written about this knowledge of Christ in his other letters. In 2 Corinthians 4.6. See, this is why sword drills are important. Um, he says, in whose case... The, uh, that's, that is supposed to be 1 Corinthians, I think. That is why getting your addresses right <laughs> are important. Give me one second. Hmm. We'll figure it out. 1 Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians. Aha, found. Okay, it is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Uh, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is clear that Paul also had the Old Testament in mind when he was uh, writing this letter, because he closely parallels Hosea 6, 6, where he says, uh, where Hosea writes, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And again, he, Peter emphasizes this same point in 2 Peter uh, 1, 3-5, stating that we have everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ. So in, in covering this idea of counting things as lost, Paul started at just the things he once counted as gain and then moved to saying things uh, are nothing when compared to Christ. Now Paul moves from theory to reality and says that he has suffered the loss of all things. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul often uh, uses his own life experiences to teach uh, that what a person believes 
dictates how they're going to act. For example, in chapter 1, he wants his, uh, this church, the church in Philippi, to know and believe that God is sovereign over all, um, over all circumstances. Paul teaches this in two ways. First, he explains the... Um, he explains his, uh, that his imprisonment, which the authorities meant to stop the spread of the gospel, um, that actually gave him an opportunity to uh, share the gospel to the Praetorian Guard. And um, when he was in the, the prison, many people were trying to, either by good motives or bad motives, preach the gospel um, so that they could maybe cause him some discomfort. Uh, but Paul says, in either way, in any case, um, all of this just gives him reason to rejoice because Christ is being proclaimed. So back to our text then, Paul is doing something similar here. He is saying that the theory of counting all, all as loss for the sake of Christ is great, but let's do that in practice. He says he is actually going to do it. In fact, he says he suffered. He already did suffer the loss of all things. So this stands out, at least it should stand out to us, or it does to me at least, I think because um, our culture today hates anything that is not for our comfort. Anything that causes discomfort, we're going to hate it. How then can Paul say that everything he has lost, even the suffering um, to lose those things, how can he say that though, that is um, as nothing, that is all good? He says that um, they are rubbish, and this word um, rubbish here is garbage or dung. Paul actually looks at everything he has suffered, even the suffering um, of the loss of these things, in disgust. He doesn't want them back. That's, that's powerful to me. I, if I think about things that I've given up because of my faith in Christ, there's part of me that wants them back, um, which is stuff, stuff I have to work through. Obviously, I don't want it all back. But um, So do we ever do this? Do we view with disgust the things that we lost because of our relationship with Christ? Uh, whether that's a, a friend or a job or a sin or um, something else we used to enjoy. We ought to see our relationship with Christ as so supremely valuable that anything that threatens this is seen as repulsive. So if we're tracking with Paul's understanding of the gospel uh, through these verses, we should see that our assurance lies in one, understanding that everything we can possibly do not only doesn't secure our peace with God, but it actually is the very reason for God's wrath against us. And two, having a relationship with Christ uh, as our Lord is the grounds for our assurance. Um, And it's through this knowledge of Christ that we are made righteous before God. This, and only this, is the reason we can have confidence to stand before him. So our assurance of salvation can only be rooted in Christ's work for us. So if this is the root, what is the fruit of this confidence of our salvation? Paul states the one ultimate thing that he is, that is the result of this relationship with Christ is at the end of verse, uh, is the verse 11. Uh, he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is what Paul wants. That is what everything is driving towards. Um, so he gives, uh, one way to get there. That's his ultimate goal and one way to get there. And he says, be found in Christ. So we'll start there. In, uh, end of eight and into nine, he says, so that I may gain Christ and I may be found in him. Paul had just said that he counted the loss of all gain, uh, that counts all things to be lost and actually suffered the loss of all things, yet still counts them as loss. All of this, um, is so that he may gain Christ and may be found in him. The words may gain and be found are written in a way to show us, again, that Paul realizes that he can't do anything uh, to secure his salvation. It is all up to God doing uh, what one commentator called a divine investigation into Paul's life. God is is searching into Paul's life and 
checking, is there any righteousness? Because that is the only way that we would have any chance to live with, with God. Um, it is only if we are righteous, if we are perfect and holy. And um, Paul understands, as, as I think we do, that we aren't holy. We are not righteous. We can't do anything to make ourselves righteous. And so Paul is saying, uh, the only chance of me attaining eternal life and being resurrected from the dead is by being found to have righteousness. And so he says, um, Paul has said that this section, or sorry, uh, so yeah, that righteousness can only come from Christ, being found in Christ. People have said that this section of scripture is a concise summary of all of Pauline theology. And if so, it can be further uh, summarized in the simple phrase, in Christ. Paul's only hope for the resurrection of the dead is by being found righteous, and the only hope for that is by being found in Christ. It is in Christ that Paul finds his confidence, and it is in Christ where Paul puts his faith. This faith, he says in verse 9, is how the righteousness of Christ is credited to his account. We attain the resurrection from the dead by putting our complete trust in Christ's work. But what is the resurrection from the dead? Paul is speaking here of the final glorification of believers, and it is best understood that this is where knowing Christ finally culminates. In many of these verses, Paul has said over and over again that Christ, or that his greatest desire is to know Christ. When God raises us up from the dead, we will have a full relationship with Christ, and we will know him fully. So this is the culmination of Paul's desire. As Paul says in Romans 8, uh, and I'll summarize it a little bit, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. As we wait for this glorious day when we will see Christ Jesus and live eternally with him, what are we to do? Well, Paul says in, in verses eight, uh, 9 and 10 that to be found with a righteousness that is not our own by faith in Christ is to know him and the power of his resurrection. I think it's really cool. We don't need to wait until Christ comes again to, be res- to experience that resurrection power. We will be resurrected when Christ comes again, but we can experience the continual day-to-day um, power of Christ's resurrection in the Spirit's enabling of us to be made like him. This is what it, the next few lines mean. To have fellowship with his suffering and be conformed to his death is to be made more Christ-like, for that is what Christ did. Even though the path of sanctification is not always easy, we ought to not want to be anywhere else because that is how we know um, Christ and that is how we will attain to the resurrection from the dead. So if our only hope of salvation is being found, in righteous, found righteous in Christ when God con- conducts his divine investigation, and we know that this is not based on anything that we have done, then what are we to do? Are we supposed to just hope really hard that God finds us righteous? Well, hopefully you'd say no based on what we've been talking about. But... Um, and this passage here answers the question perfectly, um, the question that we started with. Hopefully you remember it. On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident am I that I would be in heaven with God if I were to die tonight? And why? We must be able to truly say that uh, and believe that all of my righteous deeds and all of everything else that I do can only make me rightly deserve God's wrath because I do not love God as he deserves to be loved and I do not uh, value him as I ought. If I am to escape the judgment for my sins, I am in desperate need of someone to pay my penalty uh, for me and give me the righteousness that is not my own. 
we must be able to say that Christ Jesus is my Lord and I know him. I cling only to Jesus and count everything else to be lost. If we can truly say this, then we can give an emphatic 10. Uh, 10 out of 10, I'll be in heaven. Because we will be found in Christ with a righteousness that is not our own. However, as Paul gave evidence for his beliefs worked out in practice, um, we also should be able to look at our life and see a consistent pattern of renouncing things that threaten our relationship with Christ. Paul says, for the sake of and so that he may gain Christ, and in order that he may gain resurrection. I'm not saying that we have to do works so that we can be saved. In fact, I've been saying the opposite this entire time. Um, But I am saying with Paul that we must have a right view of the surpassing value of Christ. And if we do, if we see him as our Lord, we will live this way. This is the fruit, not the root of our salvation. So how then should we live? Many exhortations stem from this passage uh, in this chapter here. So I'll just look at a couple of them. So look with me just in a couple of verses. Um, in verse 9, we should continually count all things to be lost for the sake of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Uh, in verse 14, we ought to press on and strive toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 17, there's two things we can apply there. Um, we can be an example of this kind of life to others and help them do it. And we can find someone that is this example and ask them to help you do it. So uh, that is the uh, root and the fruit of our assurance. And so we'll pray with me. Dear God, thank you that um, we are able to know you. Uh, we are able to know the surpassing um, value of you. And I, I pray that um, we would realize that the only, the only thing that we can do is incur more wrath um, upon ourselves. And the only way that we can attain the resurrection of the dead um, in, to be uh, with you and have a full relationship with you is by being found in you. And that is not a work of our own. Um, and that is, it can only be done by you. And so I pray that we would um, earnestly desire that and earnestly seek that and come to you for, um, for all of our hope uh, in salvation. And Lord, as we go from here, I pray that we would apply this, that we would um, seek to count uh, as lost all things that threaten our relationship with you, uh, and that we would seek to be an example to others of this kind of life. And in your name, amen.